So, Bob, I have some emails here that I've been saving up for you. Oh. Because you're a therapist and you know stuff about therapy and counseling. And so I thought I would read these emails from the listeners, from these patrons, and I would get your answers to these questions. What do you say? Sure. Let's talk it over. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist, a professor, and I'm a bit of a completist in that I like to answer every question that the patrons write in. Who are you, Bob? I am your old friend from graduate school from 21 years ago. Holy cow. Uh, therapist also here in Seattle. Uh, 24 years ago. Oh, man. 24 was when we started this, this, and this time of year, 24 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you look old. Yeah. So do you. <laughs> it seems like another planet, honestly. Yeah. Uh, or another town. Oh. Even though it was Seattle at the time, it just, when I think back to that time, it yeah. just feels like a different world. Or a movie I once saw or right. something. When I look back on my life, I feel the same way. I'm not sure it was me. Yeah. 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 So, patron April wrote in. Uh, she is a uh, someone that we've talked to before on this podcast. So, hi to you, patron April. She asks us to talk about the psychology of laziness. Oh, wow. What, what do you think? That's a loaded word. Yeah. Well, what do you think? Why is it loaded? It's loaded because it's pejorative. It's like a put-down. Nobody thinks of lazy as like a compliment. And, you know, to be honest with you, I don't know what the word means. Yeah. Right. People will equate it with this notion that people sort of purposefully avoid things because they're procrastinating, quote-unquote, or they're lazy. They're, they're, it's either a personality trait. Right. Like, you know, this person is a lazy person. Right. Uh, this person sort of lacks integrity on on some level. But yeah, I totally agree with you. I've never met a lazy person. I've only met people who are avoiding something because they're afraid of it or they don't want to do it. Yeah. One of the biggest, uh, weirdest things that I realized as a young family therapist when I used to work with teenagers was I discovered, well, yeah, a big complaint that parents will have is, you know, Johnny's not doing his schoolwork. Johnny is, or Jenny is doing, isn't doing well in school. And at first I would kind of go along with that whole mentality of like, okay, we got to get this kid is lazy. We got to get this kid to be not lazy. And after, you know, thousands of hours talking with hundreds of teens in this situation, what I realized was that none of them were quote unquote lazy. All of them were struggling with something quite uh, logical, like trauma or hatred of their family or bullying at school or demoralization about school, anxiety, perfectionism about school, uh, worry about what's going to happen at school, social anxiety, whatever. There's, uh, there's something that was quite logical that would lead logically to one having troubles in school and maybe even refusing to go, refusing to turn in paperwork, homework. But of course, the teenager, given our socialization of people to not come across as weak psychologically, they don't ask for help. They just put their head down and suffer and act like everything's cool. And when you ask them, is there a reason why you're not doing your schoolwork? They're like, no, fuck you. I hate school. 
But of course, that's not what's really happening. It, it, that, they didn't get there uh, right away. That's that's their hard shell that they're putting up to protect themselves from embarrassment. Because we have pumped their heads full of notions around weakness and asking for help, particularly for boys, is, is some kind of horrible thing. Uh, so yeah, I agree with you on that one. Do you, do you have clients who will say, oh, I'm so lazy about oh, this yeah. or that? All the time. What my you, classes, what? my DBT classes, that's a big one that comes up. You know, there's a big population of those folks that are really self-critical, and yeah, the L word will get tossed around. Interesting. So it's a yeah. common thing that yeah. you see. Well, what, ki- what kinds of things do they say they're lazy about? Well, you know, I, it's a class, so there's homework. So they don't do their homework. Oh. And, and it's exactly what you just described with the kids, yeah. which is there's all these obstacles. They're emotion-based, and it has nothing to do with sloth. Right. So what do you say to them? I say, well, that sounds a little loaded. Could we, <laughs> could we slow down and let's, uh, let's kind of take a peek at that? Because okay. you never struck me as a lazy person. Okay. Yeah. All right. And and usually it's not too hard to, you know, these are motivated folks, so it's not too hard to under, uncover whatever that is that's emotional and um, validate it, really. Right. Great. That's, I mean, so you, for those who don't remember from other episodes, you do a dialectical behavior therapy group. Yeah. You've done that for a long time. You're an yeah. expert in it and here in Seattle. And this is, if you're not familiar, familiar with DBT, it's a form of uh, therapy and group classes that help people with emotional regulation and uh, relationship management. And it works particularly well for people who suffer from borderline, but it really can work with anyone who needs help with emotional regulation and how to interpret relationships, how to be assertive without uh, being a bulldozer and without being a doormat. That kind of stuff. Yeah. So Patron April also asks us to analyze the type of maniac who goes halfway into the lane before signaling. Oh, my. On the freeway. Do you think she has some feelings about that? (laughs) Uh, What do you think? I think she has some feelings about that. But what else do you think? You mean, why wouldn't somebody signal? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Is yeah. That, what's what? What question are we talking about? Whether or not they're a maniac, or whether or not they're not saying? Yeah. Well, I guess what what produces the sort of person that would do that kind of thing? Oh, where where do we start? I mean, there's a million things, right? Right. Uh, uh-huh. Rushing to the hospital, forgot, uh, drunk, um, um, angry, maybe. Yeah, all those things. The I give this a lot of thought myself. I mean, you drive around in a smart car, this tiny little car that. Yeah could be crushed by a motorcycle. So like I'm <laughs> I'm sure when you're on the freeway you're a little worried about oh, yeah. you know getting crushed. Yeah. Uh, I uh in my younger years I for various reasons I drove a lot and was on the road like cuz there was a time when as a therapist I did in-home therapy for I don't know 10 years or something. Yeah, you were on the road all the time. Yeah, it was all day long, you know, Monday through Friday it was you know, I was probably on the freeway like two or three hours a day, you know, because if you have seven clients and you have to drive from Kent to Snohomish, I would go to Vashon sometimes. And, wow. Yeah. Uh, Issaquah, Seattle, you know. So I was on the road a lot. And I liked the job because it paid better than it did at an agency. And I also just had kind of autonomy. But I, 
I didn't have a cell phone, but this is before cell phones were really big, and particularly cell phones, smartphones, you know? And I didn't have a laptop because people didn't really have laptops in in the late 90s, early early aughts. Laptops are sort of like a luxury, like for traveling business people or something. Right. So I would just, because I would would often be just sitting at a Denny's waiting for my appointment to start, you know, a few blocks down. And I'd just be staring at the wall, you know? Yeah. Uh, It's just amazing to think about how today you're never without something to do if you have your smartphone. Um, Like some grocery stores in Seattle will hire a police officer to to just kind of hang out to manage anything that happens. And I remember there was this... Before smartphones were ubiquitous and after, before the cops would just be standing there, just staring at the wall, and I just felt so bad for them. Oh, yeah. After, they're just, they're on their smartphone. They're just standing there looking at their smartphone. Um, Anyway, so I've I've given it a lot of thought, and I'm a bit of an anal driver. Um, maybe I'm trying to, you know, buck up against the driving while Asian thing or something. Oh I, so I, I try to be, I try to be a, a good driver and yeah, it drives me nuts patron April when people not only just are halfway into your lane before signaling or they don't signal at all. And I've gone through a lot of phases about my analysis of people like this. Cause I judge them quite harshly with my middle finger. <laughs> the, uh, first thing I th- thought was they're assholes. There's, you know, these people, they, they're psychopathic douchebags of some sort, you know, man or woman douchebag, you know, there's just something terribly deficient about those people. As I learned more about the human condition and started realizing that it's almost never, even for people like Charles Manson in my, in my perspective, that someone just acts out of pure evilness. Um, well, maybe Charles Manson is a is an exception to that, but but like people do things because they're trying to meet their needs, they're trying to look good in the in you know to other people, and there's so many different uh, vectors of causality that are in, uh, you know impinging on their decision making that. Sometimes what you see is something that's quite obviously not functional behavior, like going careening down the freeway. This is you're flying down the freeway, sixty just sixty five miles an hour. Even if you're following the speed limit, you are flying, speeding bullet. I mean, there are aircraft that can fly at at lower speeds than that. You you're a you know a two ton. Uh, you know, just flying hunk of, of metal and awfulness. And there's other flying hunks of metal and awfulness just flying down the freeway with you. Yeah. And you're just going to nonchalant, just doop de doo Okay. So the first thing I thought was they're douchebags. The second thing I thought was, oh, they're stupid. Mm. The third thing I thought was, oh, they must be rushing or something. They must be distracted. It must be some reasonable thing. Now I've gotten to the point where I know what the problem is. It is that people, everyone's like this. We have a problem with perception. If something isn't right in front of our face, we tend to forget that it exists, right? 
it's a similar problem when have you ever been on the airport and or in an airplane and you're getting on or off and someone has a backpack and they just hit you with the backpack like you know they they turn their body or they have a bag on their hip or something and they turn their body and their the bag just you know just clocks you in the face and you're just like god fuck you know like what are you doing and because we are not we're used to our body right and so we when we're walking around in the world we know where our elbows are in general for the most part where our butt is and this kind of thing but as soon as you add an appendage you know that sticks out you know 18 inches we've completely it, it's lost to us you know because now if we had it right in front of us like a like a you know baby bjorn bag or something you would you would you would manage it cuz you would it's right in front of you well when you're driving down the freeway you you don't typically just uh tr- you know do something that's in your field of vision that is dangerous but your blind spot that's why they call it the blind spot and people it's you know it's like they can't see it so to them it doesn't exist it's a, it's like a cognitive uh, phenomenon that we just know about. It's similar to ideas. Like if you don't know about poverty or famine or the problems with malaria, then you're just like, you know, it doesn't exist, right? It's, well, everyone has money, everyone has food, everyone has water, right? So that's why you, you know, because and the more, I do. Huh? Because I do, so everybody does. And it's not my field of vision. I don't right. see right. the the poverty. I don't see someone without water. But if you saw it all the time, guess what? You become extremely aware of it, and it affects your decisions, right? You, you know, someone who lives in an area where there's more of that, or they travel more, or they look at more YouTube videos, or whatever. And it's the same on the road. And uh, so, so uh, what do you think of that analysis? I think it's a fabulous analysis. I love the sentence, vectors of change. That's fabulous. <laughs> and I think you're right. I think humans have a natural egocentrism. And I don't mean that like egotistical. I mean, they see what's in front of them and they're aware of what's in front of them and they're aware of their own experience. And that's how they look at it, the world. Yeah. The mind is, or you could say the eyes aren't so much a camera as a projector. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, I really like what you're having to say. Yeah, and then I think match that up with not enough training for people on the road. Driving, tens of thousands of people die on the road every year in America, United States. And there are people who haven't had a instruction or a, rem- or a reminder or a refresher in literally 40, 50 years. And their instruction back in the day might not have been very good, or at the very least, they don't remember it. And <clears throat> I think that driving is one of those things that uh, should require that kind of thing. But we just don't have a culture of that. I mean, think about how much better traffic would be and accidents would be if, I don't know, once every 10 years, even five years, you had to go back to the DMV and take, take some sort of test of some sort. It's a great idea. The other thing is, is eventually we're going to have driverless cars and this will all be solved, which I can't wait for, honestly. Uh, I just, my car right now has that feature where it has cruise control, but it detects how far the car is in front of me. Right. And so in city driving, 
all I do is I just set it to, you know, five over the speed limit just in case. And, you know, in traffic, I don't, I don't have, all I have to do is make sure that I steer the car. And even then it, it kind of steers itself under certain circumstances. Holy cow. So it's basically a driverless car uh, or an interim, you know, it's in the direction of a driverless car, you know? So does it break for you? Yeah. And it breaks better than I do, like because it's a computer, right? So, yeah. it it it's the perfect deceleration ratio, right. like not too much, not too little. Does and, it accelerate for you? And it accelerates for you, and it actually ex- some circumstances I have to kind of give it a little push because it's it stays on the safe side of things, you know. Uh-huh. But yeah, I mean, I'll be going down the freeway, and I just find a lane that I like, and I do that cruise control. And I never have to think about it, you know? It it really makes it so much more relaxing to drive a car. And I think safer. Because, you know, if I'm texting someone, I'm browsing the internet while I'm driving, you know, it's not a good idea to uh, not be on this sort of thing if you're going to be doing that, right? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, I, I, I think that it's uh, a cognitive problem. I think it's too much to ask for humans to actually have that awareness. The other thing is, is um, regarding lane changing, I just think we don't have enough public service announcements. You know how like NBC will have like, um, the more you know kind of thing. I've always thought that at least 70% of those should be driving related. (laughs) And of those driving related, the more you knows, half of them should be about lane changing on the freeway <laughs> because that will, that literally kills people. That, that lack of knowledge, just, just, I, I don't know about you, but when I check my blind spot, I don't just kind of turn my head. I turn my whole body. I'm a whole body turner to make sure because sometimes there's like a little motorcycle there. You can't really see. Oh, yeah. That's or, different though. That's situational blindness. We see what we want to see. So if I turn my head and I look for a car, I'm, my brain won't register the motorcycle. Like, it's it's a perceptual kind of quirkiness. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's a little bit different than the thing. But, I, you know, I have to do the exact same thing because my, believe it or not, my little small car has an enormous blind spot. Really? Yeah. Like, because of the mirrors or because of, because of the structure of the car? The structure of the car. Yeah. yeah. Well, I find that all cars today have the the frame or the... I don't know what you call it, but the canopy or whatever, the top of the yeah. car, has much more wider spots that make it so that you can't see things because of airbags and style of car being built or something. Yeah. I mean, there's a the so you know you're driving a car and that whatever sort of post right on the right, right yeah. on the left. So you have your your windshield in front of you, and then you have that airbag that's like right there on your left. That thing is so big that I've almost run over pedestrians because the, a pedestrian will be right behind that thing. Yeah. And I start to turn. I'm like, oh, my God. You yeah. know? So, yeah. Anyway. Uh, patron April also asks, the psychology of people who screw lids on halfway. What do you think? <laughs> this came up at my house about a month ago. Oh. Yeah, we, um, we have these uh, containers and uh, pretzels is the snack of the day at my house. And... Um, one of us who shall remain my wife um, <laughs> forgets to screw the lid down. And then, you know, we're looking at stale pretzels. 
Oh. And, and several reminders. Man, there's nothing tougher than a stale pretzel. So, so the friendly reminders, the words didn't work. So I, I got really smart. I put a, a note on the thing from the pretzel leprechaun saying that lots oh. of people in the house like the fresh pretzels and they stay better if there's... And she hasn't forgotten once. Wow. Yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. So instead of being so... I mean, because, you know... What therapists will say, well, you know, just make a request. Oh, sure. Yeah, but that worked. we That'd know that, you know, sometimes people can be sensitive to criticism or being told what to do. So you made a joke out of it oh, or absolutely. a cute, cutesy thing, the pretzel leprechaun. And um, has so you, not forgotten and you've never had to talk about it. Nope. That's hilarious. But it, that worked years ago when she used to forget to empty the lint trap in the dryer. You, many, many prompts, nothing. So I just put a post-it said, hey, sexy. Don't forget this thing. Oh. I'm, I'm in my apartment. I'm changing a light bulb. And she sees it and she goes, that's the nicest note I ever got. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Tips from Bob. Follow it. Do it. Save your marriage. <laughs> uh, Patron April also asks, mental effects of having a stray hair tickle your arm all day. Can you relate to this? Uh, not an arm hair, no. I've had those in second grade. Well, she's saying a stray hair tickle your arm. I guess the hair could be from anywhere. I mean, like somebody else's hair. I don't know. Huh. That's a weird one. April, write in. Tell What are you talking about? Yeah, tell us. Tickle your arm all day. I mean, Send why wouldn't you get rid of the hair? Send a video. Maybe if the hair was stuck in your sleeve, but still, I, that, I couldn't abide by that. I, that would drive me crazy. Yeah. I'd, I'd have to rectify. I have a hairectomy. Yeah. Uh, last, mental effects of having a twisted sock that's also scrunched down in your boot that you can't fix at the moment but really want to. Oh, it drives me crazy. Oh, man. I hate that. I just fix it. Yeah, there's no. You can't live like that's that. That's an emergency. Yeah. You got to stop what you're doing. You got to reach down in there and deal with that stuff. Hopefully, you're not changing lanes while you do that. But but if, you know, need be, that's that's where the, you know... That's where my thing comes in. All right. I want to give an announcement. Again, this is uh, – uh, we've made this announcement already, but I just want to remind everybody that – and, Bob, you probably don't know this – that we reached a goal on Patreon. So we are uh, doing what we said we would do if we reached that, re- reached that goal, and we are going to give a scholarship to a, uh, you know, a student in mental health. That's wonderful. Yeah, $2,000 scholarship. Qualifications, the applicant must be a current student in mental health with with at least 12 months remaining. Applicant does not have to be a patron or a listener. Send your application materials to contact at psychologyinseattle.com. Proof of current enrollment, five-page essay, three references. Deadline is January 31, 2019. The essay should include demonstrated past commitment to making the world a better place, demonstrated need for the tuition money, and future goals for making the world a better place. Nice. Also, you should know that if you win, your name and face will be on social media because we want to highlight you. Hey, so, so what what was the goal? It was 900 patrons. Congratulations. So, yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah. So... Email us at contact at psychologyinseattle.com for submitting applications or just questions. Patron Alexandra writes in and says, 
How does one's parenting cause a child to develop borderline personality disorder as an adult? Oh, wow. That's a biggie. What do you think? Uh, it's a good question. And, and um, a little bit narrow, I think, because the way I understand that, it's not just parenting. You know, like in the 50s when they used to say mothers are schizophrenogenic, they make all their kids crazy, you know, and they study these mothers and they can't find anything because it's not true, yeah. right? But it's a little bit different. So as I understand BPD... Um, the current wisdom is biopsychosocial model of development. So it's like certain, um, maybe a poorness of fit and temperament between kid and parent. And so that's going to set up a boy, a tough natural tension for both. And then lots of experience of invalidation, even from parents who do not mean any harm. Mm. What would explain that? Well, how could that happen? Um, how could a parent who is, you know, within normal limits regarding their abilities invalidate a child or make them feel abandoned, that kind of thing? Well, if I'm a sensitive person and my parent is less sensitive constitutionally, you know, temperament-wise, they're just born that way, they're not going to see. It's like they're going to change lanes without looking. Ah, right. So and they're not going to get when I get upset about that. And the more I get upset about that, the more I make no sense to them and I frustrate them not because I'm frustrating, but because they don't get me. Right. And so the more they don't get me, the more frustrated I feel and the more upset and the more lonely, actually. And um, yeah, and round, round we go. Right. So to put a, put a fine point on that round, round we go is, so you describe that well and, you know, how it starts off. It's like just that one temperamental difference. The parents are not very sensitive to emotion or other people kind of even keeled, shall we say? Yeah, right. Kind of oblivious on some level. Maybe they're even ADHD a little bit or something. Who knows? Then you have a child who enters the world with a temperament who has a lot of sensitivity, a lot of emotion from day one. Anyone who's been around more than one toddler knows that people enter this world with personalities already somewhat intact or yeah. temperaments, you know, is what we call. And so... The child has an emotional experience, naturally reaches out to parents or wants to be noticed and isn't being noticed very much. Then the child feels upset, feels hurt, uh, re reacts badly from a place of hurt and anger. The parents over time start to label the kid in comparison to other kids as a bad kid. They start um, being kind of frustrated with the kid Again, any parent who has had a frustrating kid knows that your love, you know, uh, can be affected by how hard it is to parent that child. Yeah. You love your child. You, you would die for your child. But the amount of goodwill or softness or warmth or energy that you can put into such a child can be affected. And so... Uh, the parents sort of pull back a little bit or they're a little bit harsher or they're a little bit in a worse mood or a little bit more avoidant of that child. The child, in turn, is very sensitive and very hurt by that, notices that. And, you know, by the age of five, ten years old, there's this, there's an established dynamic between child and parents that can result in all sorts of things, including borderline personality disorder. Right. Um, nice that you're saying it's not just the one thing. Lots of things can come of that. Right, yeah. exactly. Because that's what I've learned in my studies and observing humans is that 
because sometimes people will be like, well, there were four kids in the family and only one of them has borderline personality disorder. Common. Yeah. And what I often find is the other kids have some other coping skill. Now, it's also possible that that kid had particular circumstances or particular temperament that didn't fit well, as you're saying, yeah. with the parents. But usually, in my experience, people who suffer from uh, significant personality issues, narcissism, histrionic, avoidant, paranoid, they, uh, antisocial for that matter, um, the degree of their problem is almost always associated with the degree of mistreatment. It's usually quite apparent to me. Well, let me ask you, I mean, do you get histories of your borderline clients in your, in your DBT class? Do you no. know much about their history? No, I don't, I don't get into that. That's it's, yeah. yeah. You're teaching a, you're teaching skills. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, but you've treated borderline people in your practice, your private practice, yeah, right? I have, yeah. Uh, would you say that the mistreatment is quite obvious? Oh yeah. Like sexual abuse. Oh yeah. Divorce, abandonment, yeah. um, uh, adoption, yeah. for example, death or something, depressed parent. That, a, a, a sneaky one often is a depressed parent. Yeah, or an anxious one. Yeah, who's loving, right? Yeah. So the parent loves their child, and the child never feels like they're not loved. But if you're depressed and you're in your room sleeping all the time, then... Um, that's going to have an effect similar to being if you were a meth addict or an alcoholic or even physically abusive, you know? Yeah. Um, Do you, you remember that Harry Chapin song, Cats in the Cradle? Yeah. That's a nice description of how shit gets transmitted. How so? Well, you know, he's like, the kid wants to be just like dad, and dad is avoidant. Right. And it's like, well, we'll do it later, we'll do it later, we'll do it later. And the kid learns, we'll do it later. And that's how he lives, doing it later, oh. which is to say never. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In that song, does he talk about male socialization and or why a man or a father would do that? No. He didn't talk about the why, just the what. Yeah. Yeah. Because that kind of gets back to that laziness idea, right? It's like, oh, dads can be lazy with their kids sometimes. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Instead of... Uh, giving an explanation as to why, because that because that's one thing that you know is prevalent in our society is like oh deadbeat dad oh yeah dads who don't uh, spend enough time with their kids, um, you know, it's it, like lane changing. It's too one dimensional to really get any information from what that means. Right. Yeah. Uh, whereas I guess while we're on the topic, I think a common scenario is so you know. You have a working class family because it's it's the the more uh, struggles you have as a family, the more likely this is going to happen. Right. And you have a divorce, and the you know kids because of various factors they end up primarily with the mom. And in the beginning, the dad, like any other human being, wants contact with his kids because he loves his kids. Why wouldn't he? Sure. But, you know, he was socialized to not think of himself in that way. And he was also perhaps raised by a dad who wasn't very affectionate, very close. Yeah. And he also is under a tremendous amount of pressure to 
earn money and be successful. Yeah. Which can be a massive strain on, on somebody, particularly oh, yeah. if you are living in an area that jobs aren't very abundant and your education level isn't very good. And, you know, maybe you even dropped out of high school or something. Feel a lot of survival threat. Yeah. And so you go to work all day and you come home from work and you're tired and you just want to go to bed. Now, if your kids lived with you, they would sort of energize you or something. But you live in an apartment by yourself and time goes on and, and, you know, things you drift away. And then the times you do see your kids, it's awkward because it's like we haven't seen you in two months. You feel like an outsider. You wonder if your kids are better off without you or they don't really care. And it just becomes easier just to kind of drift away, yeah. you know? Kids become teens. They have a natural draw to their peer relationships anyways. You could get really feeling really like an outside, but then there's distance. Coming. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. When kids are 16 years old and they have to spend a weekend with their dad, often they're just dreading it. They're yeah. like, ah, oh, there's so many other things I'd rather be doing. Now, they don't want to spend time with the mom either. <laughs> But what they want to do is they want to live in their regular room with their regular laptop and their regular Wi-Fi and their their regular schedule or routine or something. And so that puts tremendous strain on, on the dad. And, of course, you know, this could be for noncustodial women parents as well. But anyway, uh, I don't know how we got on that topic. Yeah, so uh, BPD, you know, how does one's parenting cause a child to develop borderline for people, uh, borderline is a coping style that involves being extremely preoccupied with your attachments and not knowing who you are as a human being. Mm. So meaning that you didn't have a parenting scenario that taught you how to recognize your own feelings how to value that, how to assert that, how to express it in a, not, in a functional way that allows for other people to respond in a caring way. You know, think of a four-year-old, you know, I watched those uh, Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, do you watch Jimmy Kimmel's? No. Uh, when, on Halloween, they, the parents will take away the, they'll fake, do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, I did see this. Yeah. So Jimmy Kimmel has he's been doing this thing for a long time and uh where they'll parents will take out their cell phone and they'll film talking to their four year old, five year old kid and they'll be like, I'm sorry I ate all your Halloween candy last night. And I am a terrible person for liking this. <laughs> it is awful. It is sadistic. It is heartbreaking. Yeah. But I still laugh my ass off. I mean, partially because it's like, well, they're going to get their candy. They, you know, the parents didn't actually eat their candy. But, but one of the things that happens is that, and, 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 if, and if any of you are judging me out there, I get it. But if you haven't watched it, um, then you can't really judge me. Because if I just heard the description, I'd be like, that's awful. Like, what a dick. All those parents are dicks. Jimmy Kimmel's a dick for doing this. But when you watch it, there's just something, I don't know, there's just something really funny about it and also kind of um, heartwarming because some of the kids will be like, 
you'll see the different styles of oh, yeah. of parenting, I think, probably. I sure. mean, temperament could obviously play a role as well. So some kids will get violent. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll actually start punching the parent. You ate my candy. Some kids will just fall apart emotionally, right? They, they have a tantrum, which honestly I would have done if I was four years old. Mm-hmm. But other kids, a good number of kids will say – They'll, they'll have, you'll see them have a visceral reaction. You know, they'll get red in the face and they'll start, they'll get a little teary. And then they'll say something like, you've really disappointed me, mom. <laughs> you know, they'll say stuff like that. Shit. They'll just be like, I'm really sad. You know, you've, you've really hurt my feelings or, you know, they're, they're putting their experience to words. It's amazing. This means that the parents have taught them that. Right. And that the parents have responded well to them, right? right? I'm sad that that I don't get another cookie. Oh, you know. Well, we. How about you have a cookie later after dinner? And then the kid's like, Oh, okay. You know, needs met, listened, heard, yeah. responded to, not given into, obviously. But you know, instead of. I want a cookie, goddammit. You're a piece of shit, kid. Shut the fuck up. You already had a, you know, you already had a cookie. Yeah. So it's, or, you know, complainers go to their room or something like that. You know, there's an interchange between parents that helps kids to understand their emotions, value their emotions, value their experience, know that other people will hear them. They don't know that they're going to get their way all the time. That's an important thing. But they know they're going to be heard and they know they're, they're going to be understood. Think about it for yourself out there. One of the most frustrating things in my life is when I'm trying to explain something important to someone, someone else and they don't get it. It's extremely distressing. It's a human need to have someone else understand you, you know, just on a very fundamental level. So for four-year-olds, they need that from their parents. If you don't do that to your parents, if to your kids as a parent, then you force them to uh, develop some way of coping with that experience. And borderline is one of the ways that they can cope with that. You know, borderline people, the, the way, what the, their style of coping is, the only way I can get love and attention is if I chase other people, freak the fuck out whenever there's any hint of being d- denied my attachment needs. And maybe even control other people, you know, actually just reach across the border and start manipulating the other person to, to love me or to give me what I need. What would that look like? As a child? Okay, yeah. The child would be extremely hypervigilant about the state of their parents. You know, they would really watch them yeah. and know their emotional state in a very abnormal way for that age. They would have uh, at the at the first like the let's say the parents are I don't know um, the 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 parents the phone ring their or no how about in today's world uh, a parent has a cell phone and the parent gets a text you know ding ding and the parent picks up their phone and because the borderline budding child is terrified of being rejected because of the traumas they've been through around that the text from the uh that goes to the parent from some unknown person is felt as a visceral threat to the child so um 
so what the borderline coping style is to try to do something about that. So, you know, like uh, distract the parent from the phone or you're always on your phone or um, or who is that or something along those lines. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And I think that's what you're calling manipulation. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't use the word manipulation. I don't either. Yeah. I, I just use what I said. Yeah. You know? Coping style. Yeah. Um, and whereas narcissistic people work will cope by saying, well, I don't need this. I'm okay on my own and I'm better than everyone. And so therefore I'm, I'm pre worthy of love because I'm awesome and better and everything's going to be fine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, anyway. Well, um, what do you think about, um, being careful to not, categorize or think of um, folks with BPD as like doing this shit consciously. Like totally. Yeah. Like yeah, no. not. No, 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 no. Uh, one, uh, it was learned as a very functional coping skill early Work. in life. Uh, two, when it'd be like saying, people have PTSD for conscious decision reasons or something. It's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah. When you, when, you know, that's why it's like, I described it as the ding on the cell phone from the parent. Uh, I think I described this way triggers a, a visceral neurological, yeah. like terror, like it, a soldier in a war kind of terror, right? Like a uh, vet comes back and here's a helicopter, you know? Yeah. It, does, you know, puts the person into a state of, of panic. Right. And that's what it's like to be borderline, is to be frequently triggered into panic about being abandoned. Because often that was their experience, was something horrible was happening to them, either abandonment or abuse or some other horrible thing. This um, is really good. I like that we're talking about it this way because... You know, if you don't have BPD, you don't get it. Right. And when people act in ways that look from the outside really, really crazy, that's that's what you're going to tend to think is they're really nuts. I want to get away. It's crazy. They're manipulative. Or I'm going to come up with lots of explanations that make sense to me that have nothing to do with the, sh the life in the shoes of the other. Right. And so talking about it this way gives our listeners, uh, your listeners, an opportunity to have uh, empathy. And understanding. Yeah. And a road to take. Now, this doesn't, if you do have a loved one who has borderline, this doesn't mean you have to put up with it. Oh, hell no. But it does provide an explanation. And I, I want to point out that all of what, whenever I talk about borderline, I'm not characterizing this as, as a woman. It, it looks as a, it often looks a particular version in women, but it, it, there's a wide variety of women who have borderline presentations or conceptualizations people don't have borderline we just label them as such because we're cobbling together some sort of observational um heuristic name you know what i mean but anyway men a lot of men who suffer from borderline are classic domestic violence people yeah. who manip quote unquote manipulate and control yeah. but it's because they have the exact same experience when they're wife if they're heterosexual well let's not even keep it heterosexual because certainly out of gay couples where they have this problem too so their partner it gets that ding on their cell phone and 
it's probably just a friend or someone at work. It's probably innocent, but the male, uh, you know, person, borderline person has that jolt of terror and panic that goes through them. And because men are more socialized to be more controlling, more assertive, more aggressive, then he's going to, he's going to start campaigning to get rid of that fucking cell phone, or he's going to install some app on the phone to monitor his partner's activity on this on the cell phone or he's going to say something mean like man you're addicted to your cell phone it not now it's a super dick move to say such things sure. and do those things but it begins with a very logical you know lane change issue of yeah of a of a jolt of panic that you know triggers traumas that they went through when they were kids um but anyway so to, to answer your question uh alexandra in a perhaps a more succinct way, um, two there are two two main causes of, of borderline. One is is just flat out bad parenting, uh, sexual abuse, physical abuse, abandonment, depressed parents, adoption, atta- you know, attachment disruptions er- early in life, um, even death. You know, your the mom could die when the kid is three, and that could begin the the style of coping of borderline. And the other cause is like what Bob was saying, when you have temperaments that don't match up well, but they have to match up well, particularly badly. Yeah. You know, there's plenty of parents who don't match yeah. up well with their kids, but it, it has to, it has to be a particularly bad match and it has to develop into a really bad match, you know? So, uh, so the key is, Alexander, if you're trying to avoid creating borderline children, <laughs> is to uh, really try to pay attention to your very young child's needs and help them understand their needs and help them to feel that they can express their needs to you um, in a functional way with their words and that you will respond well. This doesn't mean that you give in to them. In fact, it often means you don't. Like with the example of the cookie, I want another cookie. You know, you just say, yeah, I get it. You know, it it feels good to have more than one cookie. But, you know, cookies aren't really that great for us. And so we have to kind of be, you know, careful about how many cookies we eat. You know, how about you have another cookie tomorrow or something? Or or you just sit there and you're just like, I get it, man. I'm the same way. I wish I could have more than one cookie. I hear you. I'm with you. I You sit by the child. I'm with you in your sadness. I get it. You know, now the kid might go, well, can I have a cookie? If you no, you no, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm so upset. Yeah, I get it. You're upset. You know, I'm with you. You're upset. I hear you. I'm with you. I'm not telling you to shut the fuck up. I'm not ignoring you. I'm not giving you a cookie to shut you up. You know, I'm, I'm with you. I'm helping you understand your emotional state. I'm helping you to feel like you can reach out to other people and get love and attention. Um, and a no is not a rejection. Right. I, I love you, yeah. and I can't give you this cookie. <laughs> I, I will meet 99% of your need, which is to be with you, but you're not going to get 1% of your need, which is this cookie. So to me, that's pretty obvious to most parents, but if you really want to have a, have a shorthand mantra. Try to do the best you can with that. Having said all that, I will say that real life parenting is a real life you know, situation where 
you've got to get shit done. Like, I don't know, you're, you're trying to clean the dishes while you're trying to attend to your child's emotional needs, or you have five other kids that you're dealing with or whatever. Yeah. And so sometimes this is, this isn't going to work. So you don't have to do it perfectly all the time. In fact, I would say if you got it right, 25% of the time, you're probably, you're probably doing okay. Yeah. You're doing fine. Yeah. All right, let's take a break, and then we can answer more questions. What do you say, Bob? Sounds good. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast yet, do so now. That's how we know people like the podcast. Also, again, uh, apply for the scholarship or get someone else. I imagine that the applicants, many of the applicants, I'm, I'm guessing that half the applicants will be listeners of the podcast because there's a number of students who actually do listen to the podcast but there's also a number of people i'm guessing who know students um so please spread the word to your friends and family how do people apply they will email their application or just email me at contact at psychology and i can sort of walk you through it if you're forgetting what i said uh it'll also be posted on our facebook page also, if you're having trouble with the premium feed, email me at contact at psychologyandstata.com. It can be complicated, and I'm always looking for easier ways for people to access the premium episodes, believe me. I mean, I deal with this every day, and it's some people will be like, this process is really confusing. I don't understand this premium stuff. Like, why did you make it so confusing? Believe me, it's not because of me. It's because the tech people have not figured out a viable answer. It's 2018, almost 2019. And we still don't have like a simple way of having premium episodes for patrons. It's ridiculous. Um, uh, that are searchable. Cause that's the other thing is people will be like, I really want to hear that one episode and they can't find it. Right. Cause it's too old that it's been bumped off the feed or something. Oh really? Yeah. Right. So if so on your phone, if if you listen on your phone, you're you only have access to the probably the most recent two hundred and fifty episodes. We have over eight hundred episodes. Oh wow. So what I tell people to do is go to our website. So I control the website. I don't control how uh Apple deals with iTunes and all that kind of stuff, because it's all their fault. Like I don't understand some 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 podcasts, there's thousands of episodes available for us. Even though we've set the limit to unlimited and everything, it'll only list like 250 episodes or something. Which, again, is it's so dumb. But the point is, is that our website has everything. And we have a page with every episode listed. And you can do a search like right there on the front page. Like if, if you're like, okay, I want, you know, borderline this or that uh, I mean, it's it's a bit of a process to find a particular episode, but but it's the best bet. And I have a page, a couple pages that have all the Patreon deep dives. So the ones that are exclusive to patrons, I have on a couple pages. Often those are the ones people are looking for. They're password protected, but it's the same password that we use for everything else. So anyway. Okay, so Alexandra also asked a question, Bob, what do you think? What are the signs to know if you're with a therapist that's making you worse? Oh, wow. That's interesting. God. You know, usually when you read a question, my brain starts churning and I get, oh, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. I'm drawing a blank. Well, what do you think? I think that sucks. Well, what are the signs? The signs like, that you're getting worse. That 
your therapist is making you worse? Like, what would you look for? Like, if someone said to you, you know, I'm with a therapist right now, and I think my therapist is actually making me worse, but I don't really know, how would you investigate that with them? Oh, I'd probably ask questions about mood, mood changes, what's happening in therapy that um, suggests that, that that's the, where the cause is. I'd want to know that. Um, and now the blankness starts. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough question because it's, and I guess you're sort of getting at that, Bob, is that it's too general because you can't say like, because even like you said, mood, for example, like, you know, how would you know that you're, so, you know, you, know, you start therapy in January and by June, you're more depressed than you were in January. Does that mean that therapy isn't working? You know, you're shaking your head. It doesn't mean anything necessarily just on the face of it. Right. Your life could be more depressing. You could be realizing you're more depressed because you didn't know you were depressed in January. You could be getting at material in therapy that might be necessary to have some bad mood. Maybe you never grieved your the loss of your parents and you, you know, avoided it and now you're facing it and you're more depressed, you know. Um, who knows? There's just a lot of things. The The thing that I always ask people, because it usually is an effective question, is do you think therapy is helping you? <laughs> you know, it's just a simple question, right? It's like when you just, the, you know, what's the first answer that comes to your head? Is therapy helping you? Now, of course, there could be exceptions to this, obviously, where therapy could be helping and the client could have a knee-jerk reaction of saying no. But in my experience, the vast majority of clients, even clients who you know, ha- have pretty difficult conditions, when you ask them, is it helping you, uh, they often will say yes uh, when it is actually helping. Again, it's very debatable as to you know, what's making you worse or better. The other thing to look at is your goals. Like, What do you want to get out of therapy? Uh, often, I find that some clients don't even know what they're going to therapy for. They, they, they have this ambiguous notion that it's probably a good idea. But you really should know. I mean, it could be something as ambiguous as self-esteem yeah, or building a self or exploring your past, grieving your past. Or, you know, it could be something quite broad yeah, or very quite specific, like I want to quit smoking or something. Right. But you should have some idea and some internal sense of your progress with that. You know, I, I've, since, I, you know, you too, Bob, we've been therapists for over 20 years and we've had the luxury of seeing people for many, many years. Oh yeah. And so, uh, there are, and therapy usually takes a long time. You know, there, uh, in the beginning I thought therapy was like epiphanies and breakthroughs. And over time I realized that, uh, no, it's just not how things work. Therapy takes time and, change takes time and and personalities don't change overnight and lives don't change overnight and there can be absolute accelerated movement i mean i i currently have clients that i would say have some pretty accelerated growth but but in terms of like you know really long term significant change it's it's usually not seen in the short term and so i i would have clients where i would if I just thought about them for for that year, I would say we've got nowhere. You know, we're you know she's in the same spot at 
December 31st as she was at January 1 this year. She's in the same spot. But when I really zoomed out and looked at 10 years of therapy, I would say, well, she's absolutely changed and worked really hard. Look at what she's done in 10 years. And then I would say, oh, this year, it's just too hard to see because it's too, I'm too close to it and it's not enough time. In, a, in five years, and then five years would pass and I would look back at that year and I would say, well, maybe I didn't see anything that uh, specific in that year, but when you count up 15 years of therapy, there has been a, a very consistent uh, you know, path towards wellness for her. And so sometimes, uh, you know, thinking about that is, is important. Yeah. Um, but really some classic therapy making you worse scenarios are trauma therapy that is bad. You know, people that force, not force, but basically uh, create a situation for clients where they're exploring their traumas too quickly. Mm-hmm. And the client will have... Uh, you know, a lot of triggering, a lot of PTSD symptoms, a lot of dissociation symptoms as a result of that. Like that's actually kind of a, and it'll look like it's supposed to be good therapy because you're talking about the traumas and your therapist is congratulating you, but you're in a terrible state. Like that actually will make you worse. Um, Can you think of other classic examples of therapy that would make people worse? Well, you know, the obvious ethical violations. Yeah. Like what? Like sexual advance from yeah. therapist. Right. I don't know if it's going to make people worse. It's certainly not going to make them better. Right. So if that grows into something and, and I mean, because I'm just trying to think of like where a client would be confused about it, you know? Right. Like they might be like, oh, well, uh, I feel like therapy is going really well because we're so – because I get these emails sometimes. They'll be like, therapy is going really well because – my therapist really, really cares about me, you know, and he sees me like three times a week and we talk on the phone a couple times a week and uh, he, he self-disclosed. Sometimes he tells me about his life. It just really feels like therapy is going really well. Like it might be, you know, I could see it potentially working, but it's playing with fire for sure in a lot of ways. Which ways? One is that at the very least that it's unsustainable for most therapists to be providing that much uh, attention. And I've, and I've heard reports from these people who write in that eventually the therapist will pull back because they'll go to consultation or they'll wake up or something. And they'll be like, I'm, I'm spending five to 10 hours on this one client and I'm only getting paid for one hour a week or something like that. And so they'll pull back and the client will be like, what happened? What did I do? Yeah. So so that could happen. Or the therapist has completely lost their mind and is in love with this client and oh. wants to spend uh, sexy times or romantic times with this person and is doing so in this pseudo way. Oh, you know? wow. And uh, either that will lead to flat-out exploitation on behalf of the therapist, which does happen, or there's a boundary violation, which 99% of the time is is not good for the client. There's occasional times when clients will walk away from sexual relationships with their therapist and be like, yeah, it was fine or good. We got married. You know, there's people, there's scenarios like that sometimes. But in general, it could be a bad thing. So so there's that, that kind of stuff I could think of. Um, 
other therapy making you worse, I guess, would be highly critical therapists or therapists who give you the impression that they're critical of you, judging you. Oh, yeah. Um, that ain't good. I could see how that would be harmful and how a client might not be able to detect the harm per yeah, se. right. Um, Especially if I've got the experience of rejection in my past and that's what I'm used to. Right. I might work harder for this so- so-called therapist um, just to avoid further rejection as opposed to, hey, what am I doing? Right. And not see it. Right. Another scenario I could imagine would be therapists who encourage overdependence, which I hesitate to even mention because a lot of people will say, oh, this person's addicted to therapy or something. And I find that 99% of the time, what they're actually talking about is they're just, they just have a stigma about therapy and or or they're just afraid of vulnerability in therapy or something. Nice. But, but there are times, I think, when a therapist will... Um, like, this is actually a common thing. I wouldn't call it supreme harm, but I, I, I do think it's a sad form of therapy, which is client comes in who has had a life of trauma and difficulty and chaos. Say, um, in fact, I had a supervisee who had this happen. And so, you know, a woman who has been oppressed, marginalized, you know, uh, pushed down, abused, and she say she's, you know, in her thirties right now and she goes to therapy and she realizes that my partner is mean to me and I want a divorce. And so the, uh, therapist is congratulating the client on asserting herself and, you know, good job. For, good for you that you're sticking up for yourself. This is a very common, yeah. common dynamic oh, in, yeah. in therapy. Now, there's nothing wrong with it so far, but if what it often will start morphing into is the therapist will essentially be telling the client what to do or have an idea in their mind about what is the right thing to do. That's L- scary. Right. So let's say that the client starts to say, well, maybe my partner isn't so bad you know, I, maybe I could put up with his controlling ways and, you know, he he only beats me every now and then or something or whatever the case may be. Uh-huh. Or he only cheats on me every now and then, it's not a bit, or whatever. Well, it's very tempting for a therapist to, to get upset about that and to, you know, even judge the client for being weak or something. Oh, yeah. At the very least, to have an agenda about like, the only answer here is for her to leave him. Yeah. And if she doesn't leave him, that is bad. And if she leaves him, then that's good. Yeah. And this is an extremely common thing that I see in therapists doing. Um, do you see this? I've seen it in me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's natural for all of us. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's horrifying. And when I recognized it, uh, I dealt with it. Right. Which is to say I manage my own feelings. And recognize, how the hell do I know? Exactly. How the hell do I know? As a therapist who have dealt with thousands of people in thousands of lives, the one thing I've realized is that, one, life is messy, and two, Uh that I have no idea what the best path is for people. I mean, barring something really quite stark, you know, like a a man who is, you know, beating a woman every night or something. It's like, well, there's really no... but. Usually that's not the scenarios we're dealing with. 
No. And I've realized that because I've, I've looked at couples sometimes that I've worked with and I'd be like, you guys should not be together. Uh-huh. And this was, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And then over time I realized, oh, what do I know? I mean, one, they present a certain kind of thing when they come to my office. And two, love is a funny thing, you know, and, and affection and warmth can counteract a lot of difficulties and yeah. often does. So anyway. I think that sort of thing has happened to me before I was sort of relationally oriented and a client would come in and they might talk about their relationship and I might form an opinion or an idea based on, you know, who knows what, but one-sided and not looking into, you know, how is this couple dynamic affecting, you know, they're both kind of players here in, in the dynamic and, you know, the person that's doing the behavior that, you know, I probably don't like and, you know, I don't have any problem with not liking what somebody does there's a failure. There's been a failure in me to recognize it does take two to tango. Right. And that there's a side I may be blind to because I want to think well of my client or like my client. Or, and um, to me, that can translate into um, putting on blinders. Right. It's very easy to blame one person, particularly if it's the non-client partner. Oh, yeah. If you're doing it. that, That's why... When you do couples therapy, you learn very quickly that, oh, there are two sides of the story. Yeah. If if I just had one of these clients in, in therapy, I would be demonizing the other, or I'd be tempted to demonize the yeah. other person. But when I watch them in action, I'm like, oh, I get it. They both play a role. Yeah. And they have distorted views of the other person. And it's not that there's a bad guy here, or then there's two bad guys. It's like, these people are locked in something that's, you know, painful, harmful, maybe... Uh, but certainly, you know, painful. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. In line with what we've been talking about this episode, right. they will have their own triggers. It's, you know, this weird uh, cycle happens, logical cycle, in internal. Yeah. And then a behavior is this ending result of that. Nice. And all you see is this behavior, which yeah. is often quite dysfunctional. Yeah. You know, off-putting or insulting or abusive or avoidant or, you know, some something that's quite problematic and triggers the other person to have their own internal uh, swirl of, of experiences that you don't see. And then, boom, this behavior happens. And that's all you see. You just And, and it's always boggled me. I've talked about this before. I find it to be one of the tragedies of the human condition that we default to destructive behavior when we're in situations where we really are, it's the most important time for us to be more functional because, Mm. you know, I'm not not saying this right, but essentially we have a disdain or a fear of expressing vulnerability, right? Yeah. You know, the two people that we love. Yeah. Yeah. To our spouses, right? People we've been in love with for five, 10, 30 years, we have a, a problem with saying to them, You hurt my feelings, or I'm sorry I did that, or I admit I was wrong, or I need you, or I miss you. Like, we have, for some people, they can do this beautifully, but yeah. for most people, you know. God bless them. Uh, it's it's like 
really hard to say those things yeah. without having a bunch of protective measures. And even the protective measure, it's like, what are we protecting against, you know? Sure. Now, we can talk about socialization, about when you're a kid, you're yeah. shamed for having feelings. But at the same time, just like, well, if you're shamed for having feelings, then why are we such – why are we so allowed to have anger? Like, why is anger – Yeah. You know, it's like we're generally shamed for anger, too. It's not like anger is encouraged in kids, you know, for the most part. Right. But somehow, as adults, we're just like, yay, anger and distance and being aloof and critical. Like, isn't that isn't that the best scenario? And being warm and honest and validating is somehow really hard. And I just find that to be one of the tragedies of the human condition. I get you. It keeps us employed, of course, but... <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So I don't know if I I really finished my point on the dependency thing. Oh, so so I hope that makes sense. Is that if you are a client and you find that your therapist has an agenda for your life, even if it's the right agenda for your life, but if if you find that your therapist seems to have a foot in the game, is that the is that the Something phrase? in the game. Something in the game. I don't know. Yeah. Has a foot in the race? I don't know. I'm terrible with idioms. Uh, if if your therapist seems to have a agenda for you, like they want you to get divorced, you, you get the sense like, oh, my, my therapist wants me to divorce my spouse. Or my therapist wants me to tell my mom to go to hell or something, you know. It's a red flag that the therapy isn't really therapy, and it's more of you're going to someone for advice about how to live, and and they ha- you're going to more of a friend essentially, who it could be helpful, but the best therapy is when the therapist uh, creates a space that allows the client to explore these complicated issues themselves, and. Uh, maybe get some advice, but really a, a space so that they can evaluate their own life and, and have someone observe them in a caring way. And, and um, you know, I'll even, I'll say flat out to my clients sometimes. So if I was your friend, I have to say, I would, I would probably just tell you to leave him. But as a therapist, I know better that things are more complicated than that. And love can be found in all sorts of places and no relationship is perfect. And also, I think the most important thing is that you feel good about your decision, yeah. that you know what to do, because that's the only way this is going to work. And the fact that you don't know what to do yet is fine. And I'm okay with that, you know? And let's, let's continue exploring this. And I know it takes a long time. Um, the, the decision to leave your partner, on average, with my clients, takes like three years, you know, oh well, yeah. From the day they say I'm done with this person, to the day they actually leave this person or decide one way or the other, on average it's three years. Which means like it could take ten years. I've had clients where every session they come in, they talk at least in part about they want to leave their partner, and we talk about it. And you know, uh, it, I have temptations, as you're saying, to sort of, well, just leave the bastard. <laughs> like why, you know. It's been 10 years you've been complaining, but that's ridiculous because life right. is way more complicated than that. And that's not therapeutic because it's really for clients who 
grew up with experiences where their parents didn't let them make their own choices, it makes sense that they have trouble making choices later in life because they don't know what they want. They don't know how they feel. Well, the last thing they need is me making a choice for them. Right. Yeah. So, I don't know. Uh, that's that answer, Alexandra. All right. Well, let's put an end to this rambling episode. What do you say, Bob? Sounds good. That does it for that episode. Please take care of yourself because... You deserve it. <laughs>